If you can open your Bibles to chapter 2, thank you, uh, verses 15 through 21. Chapter 2, 15 through 21. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. No one is immune from legalism. The church's susceptibility to legalism is a reality today. It, it, it was a reality in, in the Apostle Paul's day. Whole churches like the Galatian churches, apostles like Peter, gospel hearers of the faith like Barnabas, all struggled to keep the grace in the gospel. Legalism isn't, isn't just a problem for Roman Catholics. It's a problem for the best of Calvinists. And this was true in the, in the Scottish Reformed Church in 1717. Back then, if you were an aspiring minister, your ordination exam was held before a, a local presbytery of church leaders. And, and one such minister was William Craig. And on Fe February 12th, during his ordination exam, he had been asked to agree, he had been asked to agree to a statement that became known as the Octorarder Decree. It was a creed named after the town William Craig was taking his final exam, final exam in, and the statement was this. He had to agree to this to pass the test. I believe that it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ and instating us in covenant with God. Mr. Craig disagreed with this statement, and his official application to preach the gospel was rejected by the local council. Months later, Craig appealed to the assembly, and his appeal was accepted, and the local presbytery of Arcturator was ordered to restore his license and in addition, the, the National Assembly condemned the creed. They declared it was an expression of antinomianism. And by the way, that, is, that, that antinomianism is the belief you can be a believer and sin all you want to without any penalty. Along with this creed, there was a, a group of men known as the Marrow Men, and they kind of uh, rallied together in opposition to the National Assembly's decision. And they, they, they reproduced the, this book 
that really talked about the gospel and, 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 and the distinction between works of the law and what is the pure gospel, and they, and they republished it, and they published it under a pseudonym, and the National Assembly condemned that book too as promoting antinomianism. And so uh, these Merrill men had uh, realized in response that, uh, that they believed that the assembly had, had lost their way. They had erred in their decision. They had failed to understand the theology behind the statement, although poorly worded, this creed, poorly worded, the Merrill men insisted that the creed was correct and biblical. It was an accurate representation of the gospel. And furthermore, they, they thought that where you stood on this statement was actually a, a litmus test that exposed where you really stood with regard to the gospel and legalism. It, it's kind of a trick question. It's a kind of a trick statement for aspiring ministers. They believe that where you stood with regard to this statement revealed the true condition of your heart with respect to, the, to your understanding of the grace and the gospel. Even though the national leaders of the, the Reformed Church, they all ascribed to the Westminster Confession of Faith on justification and the nature of salvation, the Merrill men realized that the Church of Scotland had drifted away from that gospel. What about you? Some of you may think that the problem that Galatians addresses is not my problem. You don't struggle with legalism. You don't believe that salvation is by works. The topic is irrelevant to me. The problem is overblown. You're just saying this because this is your sermon series and you want me to listen more. And if, I challenge you then, if that, if that is the case, then, then why do some of you think this statement behind me is incorrect? when it is in fact right and true. This historical event is, is taught in English and Scottish Reformed churches today. It is common knowledge uh, for Reformed seminary students in England and Scotland today as it was for the past 300 years. And it's taught to serve as a warning about our natural tendency to drift away from a clear understanding of grace in the gospel. And so in today's sermon, we're going to learn why this statement is actually true and faithful to God's word. So don't stand up and rebuke me like Paul did Peter. Now hear me out until the end. Last Sunday, we considered the, the ease in which legalism can rear its ugly head in the heart and in the actions of a genuine believer. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we studied how, how easy it was for Peter, one of the original apostles, uh, how easy it was for him to capitulate to the false doctrine of the Judaizers. Right before Acts 15, after Paul had returned from his missionary, first missionary journey, he discovered that Peter was eating at a table with the Jewish Christians only. His actions can communicated to the Gentile believers there that their faith in Christ wasn't good enough for a relationship with God, thereby making them second-class citizens. And so Paul is forced to publicly rebuke Peter in verses 11 through 14. 
Peter's actions as an apostle would have surely validated this false doctrine for everyone else in the early church. This would have ended badly for everybody had not Paul intervened. And you see the kind of the domino effect of Peter's influence. Uh, First it's Peter, then it's the rest of the Jews in the church of Antioch, the Christian Jews. Verse 13, they join him with the result. Verse 13, even Barnabas is carried away by their hypocrisy. This is the influence of Peter in the church. And in verses today's passage, uh, Paul continues his address to Peter. Paul explains why his behavior is so damaging to the witness and credibility of the gospel. These verses contain in short form the gospel that Paul believed in and proclaimed. This paragraph of our our morning today is the central thesis of the letter to the Galatians. It functions as a, a transition from Paul defending his apostolic authority and his gospel independence that began in chapter 1, verse 11, to a more elaborate enunciation of the gospel starting in chapter 3. And the central truth of the gospel that Paul communicates is this. Right standing with God does not come from keeping the law since everyone sins. Right standing with God comes only through faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, Paul says this, Peter, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Paul reminds Peter of the past. Paul and Peter were indeed privileged to be a part of God's chosen covenant people, Israel. They were by nature Jews. They were born sons of Abraham, and this was no small honor. Paul and Peter were, were, were recipients of God's covenant promises. They had, they had received the Mosaic law. They were given the Levitical system of sacrifice. Paul says they weren't the same kind of sinners, quote-unquote, the Gentiles were, who had none of these uh, spiritual privileges by birthright. In, in verse 15, Paul is speaking from the typical viewpoint of the Jews toward the Gentiles. And Paul says, uh, to Peter, Peter, we're not, we're not sinners like the Jews uh, think Gentiles are. We're part of the nation Israel. We enjoy every privilege God has given to this nation in the Old Testament. Verse 16, nevertheless, Peter, even though we've inherited this, this, this spiritual privilege of being Jewish, we know the true story. We know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Peter, you and me, uh, Jews by nature and not sinners like the Gentiles, we know the gospel of grace. Because we heard and know this gospel, Peter, look at verse 16 again, even we, even we, Peter, you and me, Jews by nature, and not sinners among the Gentiles, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. And Paul appeals to common ground of the gospel shared by him and Peter. What exactly did Paul and Peter know and believe? Well, let's start from the beginning of the verse 16 again. They knew that a man is not justified by works of the law. The, the, The word justified or justification is the opposite of condemnation. 
It means God's verdict of not guilty on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to our account. This is a forensic righteousness. This is not an actual righteousness within us. It's a righteousness declared when you first believe. It never goes up. It never goes down. It stays the same. You're not guilty. You're perfectly acceptable before God. All of this belongs to you. And so even though Paul and Peter were by nature Jews who had received the Mosaic law, they knew that a man was not justified by the works of the law. God does not look at the deeds demanded by the Mosaic law, works like, uh, works like circumcision or the keeping of dietary laws uh, or keeping the Sabbath. He doesn't see that as a basis for justification. He does not take this into account. He does not principally uh, count any moral deed for that matter, any good work uh, for, uh, for, from anyone as a basis for your right standing with him. And so he says, this is the this is the, the truth of the gospel. And then later, in the middle of verse 16, he says, even, even we believe that. Now Paul applies what is true about all human beings to himself and Peter as Jews. And, and Paul's point is clear. If both Peter and Paul, who were members of the covenant people of God Israel, if they needed to put their faith in Christ in order to be right before God, if they cannot be righteous in God's sight by keeping the law, then it makes no sense, Peter, why you're doing what you're doing in verses 11 to 13 to compel the Gentiles to observe the law. Peter, this is, this is hypocrisy. Verse 14, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He finishes verse 16 with the statement, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Three times in verse 16, Paul repeats that phrase, by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. It's not just that Gentiles don't have to be like Jews to be saved. It is actually the Jews who need to be like Gentiles. They need to know that they are just as sinful as Gentiles. In other words, the Jews need to know that they are just as hopeless with the law as they thought the Gentiles were without the law. Let me say that one more time. The Jews need to know that they are just as hopeless with the law as they thought the Gentiles were without the law. Jesus is our only hope, only Christ. He is a fully sufficient Savior. When it comes to the sufficiency of Christ alone in our salvation, Douglas Moo writes this, nothing should be added, nothing can be added, nothing must be added. Paul in verse 17 continues and he addresses an an argument being made against him. Paul says in verse 17, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. If Paul and Peter are seeking justification in Christ, instead of in accordance with the law, the, the argument being made is that they are now sinners. Since you're no longer obeying the dietary laws of, of, of Moses. That makes them sinners like Gentiles in verse 15. And Paul says, fine, 
you want to call me a sinner like you call the Gentiles because I'm, I'm eating bacon, because I'm, I'm, I'm eating pork. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I know the truth. But don't mess with Jesus. Don't call him a minister of sin. So the, the argument the Jews are making against Paul is that the, Paul's actions and his teaching and his doctrine, they're making Christ out to be a minister of sin since justification in him has led to the abandonment of the Mosaic law. The Judaizers are saying, if you're no longer obeying the dietary laws of the old covenant, you're, you're sinning, you're telling everybody else to sin, Paul, and you're making Jesus look very bad. You're portraying Christ as an agent of sin since, you, since you're saying that Jesus is the reason you're doing this. You're saying Jesus is the reason we can leave the, the, the old covenant behind. And so the, the Judaizers, they're feigning, they're, they're faking this concern for the honor of Christ. They're saying, Paul, how can you do this to Jesus? And Paul responds in verse 17, may it never be. That is, that is absurd. Fine, you call me a sinner, but, but don't call Jesus a minister of sin. Because it's not sin to be a sinner in the way that the Judaizers are framing the situation. It is not sin to, to no longer depend on my works for salvation. Yes, Christ has freed us from the works of the law, but he is not thereby a facilitator of sin. May it never be. That's absurd. Now in verses 18 through 21, Paul will argue why Christ is not a minister of sin when he frees us from the law. The word, the first word for in verse 18 indicates he is going to address this charge. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul says, I'm not the sinner. Christ is not a minister of sin. You see, Paul, in seeking to be justified in Christ, he tore down the law as a means of justification. He destroyed, he destroyed the, the Pharisees' misuse of the law in order to be justified. The law of Moses never taught that justification was by works. And so this Pharisee, this Pharisee perversion of the law, Paul tore that down to be justified in Christ. He destroyed it. The word destroyed is used 17 times in the New Testament. Eight, half, half the time it's used, it's used to refer to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so I think Paul has that kind of imagery there. The temple that the Pharisees had perverted and corrupted. And so Paul says, his logic in verse 18 is, if, if he rebuilt what he once destroyed, if he rebuilt the law as a means of justification, and he turned away from trusting in Christ, for alone for justification, then he would be truly a sinner and a transgressor. See, if I rebuild, if I do what you want, want me to do, you Judaizers, to go back to the law, then I'm really a sinner. Then I prove myself to be a transgressor. 
Paul can't undo his salvation. Paul says, I'm not going to turn my back on, on Christ and go back to the law. You don't know what sin is. You don't know what transgression is. Verse 19, Paul, there's another word there for. Verse 19 further explains verse 18. Verse 19. Verse, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Once Paul realized the law can never be the means of his justification, once he felt the condemning power of the law to his sin, he died to the pursuit of righteousness through the law. He turned to Christ for grace and eternal life. When Paul recognized that he could not fulfill the law in his own strength, when the law convicted him of his guilt, he died to the law. The New Living Translation translates verse 19 this way, for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. And the logic, again, is this. If you have to die to the law in order to live to God, then aren't you the transgressor when you attempt to rebuild the law again? Because the harder you, harder you try to earn your way into God's favor, the farther you move away from God. And this is the irony of legalism. You can either focus on God's demands of the law and your mistaken ability to keep the law, or you can recognize the perfect standard of the law and your inability to keep the law. And the first way leads to a life away from God. The second way leads to a life to God in his presence. I'm not going to rebuild what I destroyed because I want to live to God. I, I want to experience my life in Christ. I died to this perverted understanding of the law so that I, I might live to God. Why would I go back there? I'm not the transgressor. You are. What does death to life, what, what does death to law and life to God look like in specific terms? What does dying to reliance on my good works for salvation versus total trust in Christ alone look like? Verse 20 tells us. Verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There is perhaps no verse in the New Testament, Testament that defines the true nature of the Christian life in one verse than this verse here. Verse 20 is a description of what theologians call union with Christ. If you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, then verse 20 is the description of your most fundamental identity. We call ourselves by many names, Christians and believers. We call ourselves Protestants. And then over the years, when the mainline denominations began to turn away from the gospel, the church had to come up with another name. So they came up with the name evangelicals and then Synonyms for that born-again Christian, when really that's just being redundant. If you're a Christian, you're born again. But they needed to distinguish believers who trusted in the gospel versus Protestants who turned away from the gospel. Paul says, however, that if he were to name us 
he would use the words in Christ. Every time you see those two words, in Christ or in him, Paul is referring to the doctrine of of union with Christ. You see, in the New Testament, we're called Christians maybe two or three times, but those two words, in Christ or in him, are found 180 times at least. And the question you, you should be kind of asking yourself, if this book is about justification, why does Paul bring up the doctrine of union with Christ. Why does he make this, verse 20, almost the central verse of the entire book about justification? Why does Paul tie together justification stated in verse 16 with the doctrine of union with Christ explained in verse 20? Answer, because he wants to make clear to us that justified that justification by faith is not the entire gospel. Paul wants to make clear that Christ is the gospel. And that justification, as foundational and important as it is, is still in Christ. Back in verse 16, you don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, when Paul says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Literally, in the Greek, it's even we have believed into Christ Jesus. A very odd uh, pairing of that preposition. You you never usually see that with uh, the the, the Lord Jesus together. Paul's implying union there. Verse 17, Paul says, while seeking to be justified in Christ, justification happens in Christ. In Christ, it happens in conjunction with our union with Christ. Paul says in Romans 8 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation is just justification stated negatively, right? Paul could have easily have said, therefore, there is now justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. What is union with Christ? I looked up whole definitions by all these. Systematic theologians. I I like Wayne Grudem's definition. He says, union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers in Christ through which a a, a Christian receives every benefit of salvation. These these relationships include the fact that that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we we are with Christ. I I like um, theologian A.H. Strong, kind of an older guy, He defines union with Christ this way. It is a union of life in which the human spirit, while then most truly possessing its own individuality and personal distinctness, interpenetrated and energized by the spirit of Christ, is made inscrutably but indissolubly one with him, and so becomes a member and partaker of that regenerated, believing, and justified humanity of which Christ is the head. In other words... One of the things union with Christ implies is that the doctrines we call election and predestination, God choosing us before time, uh, doctrines like justification, our forensic imputed righteousness, uh, regeneration, being born again, faith and repentance, perseverance, sanctification, glorification, they all happen in Christ. You can do no good thing outside of him. No spiritual life can happen outside Christ. Christ is the gospel in that way. 
You cannot appropriate the benefits of the cross and the resurrection outside of union with Christ. The, the, the Merrill men would use this phrase, Jesus is dead for you. What were they saying? They weren't saying that Jesus was dead. They, they affirmed the resurrection. He was, they were making the point, you cannot separate his work on the cross 2,000 years ago and the person of Christ. And so therefore, if, our, if the cross and the cross's benefits and blessings, if they're given to us, his death, it's given to us in Christ, we can say Jesus is dead for you in that sense. Jesus is the vine and you are the branches. You cannot separate the blessings of Christ, the work of Christ, the privileges of Christ with the actual living, the living Christ. Christ is the gospel that way. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, while we can distinguish Christ's person and his work in analytical theological categories, they are inseparable from each other. Since there is no work of Christ that takes place abstracted from, and in that sense, outside of his person, the blessings of his work cannot be appropriated apart from receiving Christ himself with all his benefits, what God has joined together, we must not put asunder. Christ is dead for you. He is risen for you. Paul makes clear in verse 20 that Christ is the gospel, not justification. And that's why the Octorarder Creed behind me is correct. I know the wording is kind of strange and poorly worded, but the idea is that you cannot lay down your sin before you come to Christ. You're dead outside of Christ. It can only happen once you're in Christ. To attempt to do so before you come to Christ is to add your own merit to Jesus. That's legalism. And so when you share the gospel, you never want to say, you never want to use words to the effect that Jesus, he died to save the elect. Why not? Because even though that is true in the application of salvation, it is never presented in the Bible as a condition to believe in the gospel. The gospel is not, you have to believe that you're one of the elect to trust in Christ. No, the gospel is Jesus died for you, the sinner, Receive him by faith and repentance. You never want to imply there's some sort of preparation that you need to, that needs, that needs to happen before they come to Christ. You're adding to faith. You're adding to, you're adding a work to grace. You're adding a work to Jesus. And so we receive him through repentance, but we don't repent before we see, we, before we receive Christ. You can't repent outside of Christ. You can't repent unless you're regenerated, and regeneration happens in Christ. Before you start kind of questioning me and getting all suspicious about my theology of the gospel, let's hear it from Charles Spurgeon. He says when you try to qualify trusting in Christ, he calls this mingle-mangling the gospel. And he says this. It's a long quote, but it's really good, so bear with me. And you can't read it. Can you read that? Try to read it. <laughs> I'll read it for you and pretend that you can read it. And those, I think, commit this sin in a large measure who make a mingle mangle of the gospel. And I, I mean this. When we preach the gospel, we, won't, we have only to say, sinners, you are guilty. 
You, can be, you, you never can be anything else but guilty in and of yourselves. Grace must be given to you because Jesus died and for no other reason. And the way by which you can have that grace is simply by trusting Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, you shall obtain full forgiveness. This is pure gospel. If I tell him that he is warranted to believe in Christ because he feels a law work within or because he has holy desires, I have made a mess of it. I have put something of the man into the question and marred the glory of grace. My answer is, man, your right to believe in Christ not, lies not in what you are or feel, but in God's command to you to believe in God's promise, which is made to every creature under heaven, that whoever so believes in Jesus Christ shall be saved. Trust Christ and you are saved. Not because you are a sensible sinner or a, a penitent sinner or anything else, but simply because God of his free grace, with no consideration rendered to him on your part, but grace and for nothing, freely forgives all your debts for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now I have not mangled the gospel. There it is with nothing of the creature about it, but the man's faith, and even that is the Holy Spirit's gift. Those who mingle their ifs and buts and insist upon it, you must do this and feel that before you may accept Christ. Frustrate the grace of God in a measure and do not damage to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's what I'm trying to say. Virgin says it better. And I, and I really do think he has the Octorarder Creed and the theology and the lessons from that behind this statement is my opinion. Because it was so common in this day and age to know that lesson from history. You do not lay down your sins before you come to Christ. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He didn't say you need to get in shape before you come to me. He says, come to me first with all your burdens And then when you come to me with these burdens, and he's specifically uh, speaking of the burdens of the sinfulness of legalism, I will give you rest. There's no qualifications. He says, come to me first, and then I will give you all the power you need to do what you need to do. That's the pure gospel. In verse 20, Paul defines union with Christ with three statements. I have been crucified with Christ, number one. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Oh, I'm sorry. The second one is, uh, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, number two. And number three, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's take these statements one at a time. Let's consider the first statement. I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul says Christ is with you. In the Greek, the statement begins with the word Christ. That's how New Testament Greek emphasizes something. Literally, in the Greek, it reads, Christ, I have been crucified with. Two Greek words. Christ is one word. I have been crucified with is the second word. That second word is the perfect tense, and it's, the, it's in the perfect tense, and it's in the passive voice. The perfect tense connotes something that happened in the past with present-day implications. Something powerful happened in the past. For example, if I say, eight years ago I married my wife, you're waiting for and what? You you know there's some present day implication. That something that happened in the past affects me deeply today. There are major implications now, even though it happened in the past. The passive voice uh, shows an action done to you. 
I didn't crucify myself. God crucified me with Christ. God is the one who killed me on the cross when Jesus died. And the effects of his death still influence my life today. What does this all mean? It means that when you put your faith in Christ, you were placed in Christ and you were then mysteriously connected with his death 2,000 years ago. Your old life died as soon as you believed into Christ. When did it die? When Jesus died. The old Adamic nature died to the power of sin. You were set free from the slavery of sin's domination over you. In this context, Paul is specifically referring to the death of his self-righteousness, his self-exaltation. Paul died to his self-reliance. He died to his self-confidence. He died to the righteousness he thought he had merited through the law. W.A. Criswell, a famous Southern Baptist preacher some time ago, he went to Israel for the first time when he was about maybe in his 80s, and he was very old. He and a group from his church went there, and they went to the place where Jesus supposedly had died, and the, and the tour guide asked the group, uh, has, has anybody ever been here before? And Criswell raised his hand. He says, I have. And the tour guide was surprised. He said, uh, Mr. Criswell, you, you told me this is the first, your first trip to Israel. And Criswell said, when Christ died 2,000 years ago, I died with him. The second statement in verse 20, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul says Christ is in you. He is with you. Now he says he is in you. I remember when I was 17 or 18, I was an unbeliever. I was lost. My life was a mess. I remember talking to my friend, and I said, looking forward to the future a little bit, and I said, I, I can't, I can't, I'm kind of looking forward to going to college and moving out of the house. And I said, because I want to find myself. I need to find myself. Well, do you think I found myself? I never found myself. It was only when I believed in the gospel when I realized that I never needed to find myself. I just needed to die. I just, I just needed a new life. And Paul says that this new life is marked by Christ living in you. He lives in you when you're in him. And when somebody lives inside of you, that person can get no more closer. Christ living, you, living in you means Christ's hope and the Father is your hope. It means his strength is your strength. It means the songs that Jesus sings becomes your songs that you sing. It means whatever storm you're sailing through, you will never stop feeling his love and his peace. It means when you're scared, when you're discouraged, he will comfort you from the inside out. The modern hymn writer says it this way, In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. If Jesus visited you this next weekend and he stayed at your home, 
You think you would live a little bit differently? Jesus is in the guest room. He's in the living room. He's in the kitchen. I think so. I, I think you would wake up early if Jesus was your house guest. I think you would be the most loving husband you've ever been to your wife. You'd be pretty patient with your kids. You'd be in traffic with Jesus as calm as someone sailing on a cruise. You wouldn't be late to church. Jesus was next to you. You'd sing like you never sang before, wouldn't you? You'd fail your entire notebook during the sermon. You'd be the last person to leave after church. Relax, Jesus isn't coming to your house this weekend. But don't you realize his home is in your very heart? And as long as you're alive, he's never thinking about moving, believe it or not. He's never thinking about, I need to to find a new place to live. What kind of home is the Lord Jesus living in? What kind of home is he living in? Jesus said it's, before he died, he said, I, I'm going to go to heaven to prepare a mansion for you. And, but in the meantime, guess what? The mansion he lives in now is in your heart. Is it a mansion? Or is it a, a house that needs to be condemned? There's a third statement that Paul makes in verse 20. He says, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says Christ is with you. Paul says Christ is in you. Now Paul says Christ is for you. One commentator said this about this last phrase in verse 20. This new life is not characterized fundamentally by working for God, but by believing in the Son. This new life is not characterized fundamentally by working for God, but by believing in the Son. Two times here, Paul says, I live in this statement. It's in the present tense. Every hour, every day, I'm living by faith in the Son of God instead of trying to earn his love. I'm not trying to work for it. I'm not, not, I'm not trying to prove that I'm worthy of his love. I know, I believe every day that the Son of God loves me, loves me because he gave himself up for me. His love was already proven on the cross. And I think one of the reasons why we fail to live day by day with this conscious act of faith in in Christ, is because I think over the years, over time, you know, following Jesus, it, it's not easy. It's not easy. And over the time, we, we kind of subconsciously and, and passively developed this kind of credit mentality. And like, I, I've, I've done all this for you, Lord, for the past 15 years. And we, we think that, that all these years of faithfulness is now the reason why he loves you. Paul says, no, 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 you got it wrong. You're not living by faith in Christ. You're living by faith in yourself when you get to that point. For Paul, he he says, it wasn't just anybody who loved him. Look at verse 20 again. It was the Son of God who loved me. Not just anybody. The Son of God loved me. You know, I I have two, 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 two little boys. I'm so thankful that they love me at this age. One's six and one's three. But you know what, you know, you know, if you have kids, at that age, they're just kind of programmed to love you. They just automatically love you, right? But when they get older, when they get to know me more, 
when they stop forgetting, when their hearts get colder, their love for me will change. Their love for me will never be the same as it was when they were six and three. Paul says, it's this all-knowing, omniscient Son of God who loved him. The one who knows every sin. And remember, Paul is the chief of sinners. Me. He loved me. The one who persecuted the church. The one who killed believers. It's this me that the Son of God loves. This is an amazing love. Jesus knows your every single sin, every motive, and his love for you never changes. If you could look in my heart for 20 minutes, you would hate my guts. I would hate yours. But not the Son of God. He sees it all. And Paul says, and he loved me because he, he gave himself up for me. He took my place on the cross. He became my substitute. He did this for the chief of sinners, Paul says. What an amazing love. Christ is with you. He's in you. And he's for you. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, if you remember from earlier in the chapters, the the Judaizers' message was Christ plus works of the law. Paul, I'm not not saying righteousness comes through the law. I'm saying that it's both. And Paul says here, no, you, you can't have both law and faith. You can have either one or the other because they're really mutually exclusive dynamics. Because if righteousness comes through the law, then you have to prove to God you've kept the law. And once you've proven that, God owes you something. He's obligated to give you what you deserve. But if righteousness comes through the grace of God, it necessitates the opposite. It necessitates you've broken the law. Instead of maintaining your innocence, you have to plead guilty. You can't claim what you deserve. You have to plead for what you don't deserve. And so that means on the day of judgment, you can't say, well, uh, Lord, I'm I'm not guilty, but but I'm guilty. No, a faith plus works message is really a works righteousness message. A faith plus works gospel is really just a righteousness through the law gospel. And if righteousness comes through the law, verse 21, Paul says, then what was the point of Jesus' death? Paul makes one final point here. He's, he's saying in response to this charge of making Christ a minister of, of sin, an agent of sin, he says, no, 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 no. Your faith in the law does that. Your faith in the law turns Christ into a minister of foolishness because if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You don't care about his glory and honor. This is just about you. This is about your glory. Imagine your house was burning down but your whole family had escaped. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And then I ran into the house and died. And you would probably think, what a waste of a life. But now imagine your house was on fire and one of your children was still there. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into the flames. I save your child, but I lose my life in the process. You would think, wow, 
that man really loved us. You see, if you could save yourself, Christ's death means nothing. It's a wasted life. It's a wasted death. But if you could but if you really realize you can't you can't save yourself, if you know deep down you, you cannot contribute an ounce, a sliver of merit to your salvation, then Christ's death will mean everything to you. Everything. You have everything in Christ. You have everything in Him. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to the final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand. There's power in Christ. There's no power in the law. Father, we thank you for this rich gospel banquet, this ten-course wedding gospel banquet of theology. Lord, remind us through these verses of the true gospel that every day, no matter what we've done for you by your power, that our obedience is, is an outflow of thankfulness and love, and it'll always be that way. It'll never slip in, inside of us to think that's, that our obedience to the law is somehow the foundation when it's always Christ. Lord, would we live every day, day by day, in the Son of God, who was with us, who was in us, who was for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.